Hey everyone, Oscar here. This week, we've got a special guest to break down the Steelers game. Jeff Dini, an analyst at Pro Football Focus and a fellow Niner fan, joins us to talk about the Week 3 win and discuss the 49ers' hot 3-0 start. We also talk a little bit about players of the game and how good this team really is. Uh, even though we've got a bye week next week, we will still be back. We've got a very, very special guest lined up for next week as well. So without further ado... Here is our week three recap with PFF's Jeff Dini. Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week it is a third consecutive win Wednesday. Oh, and have you heard? The Niners are 3-0 for the first time since 1998. And with me this week to tell us exactly how Jalen Ramsey managed to conceive and birth a child in just one week, it's Jeff Dini. How's it going, Oscar? Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's great, man. So have you heard that? I mean, Jalen Ramsey... He has, I mean, he's achieved Hall of Fame level status for getting out of work because he's had the flu, he's had a sore back, and now he's leaving the team to go to Nashville for the birth of his second child all in one week. I mean, this is just, this is Hall of Fame status for getting out of work. No, that's impressive. I think there's been some hamstring issues somewhere in there too. But yeah, the, the kid came all of a sudden and was like, yeah, surprise. Uh, yeah, we're about to have a kid, so I'm out of here. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, at this point, you'd um, think he was like a Cromartie or something. <laughs> I think Kamari's got about one for every week of the season these days, doesn't he? Yeah, it's. I think he's up to fourteen at last count. Uh, oh my god! Which is, yeah, that's. I mean, hey, you know what? He's he's beating evolution. I think is what is what that's called. Uh, but hey, nineteen ninety eight was the last time the Niners were three and zero. Number one Billboard song in nineteen ninety eight. Next, too close. You know the baby when we're grinding, we get so excited. Ooh, how I like it. I try, but I can't find it. Song. I know you know all the words. I know you do, Jeff. <laughs> What were you doing uh, in 1990? Trivia, yeah. Uh, trying to decide if I want to be a professional bowler, but that's a long story for another time. <laughs> a professional bowler? Yes. I presume we're not talking haberdashery or like like it's not bowler hat making, but like an actual bowler. Yeah, no. After college, after I was trying to figure out what do I do, there was a brief moment where. So long story. I bowled in college and high school and stuff like that. And actually, was halfway decent. Right. And after I got out of college, it was one of the things I was trying to find a full time job. I kicked around, uh, possibly doing. Um, kind of got to a point where uh, I I had a lot of talent, but then I got to the point where I was bowling against guys who had just as much talent, but were practicing and bowling thirty, forty hours a week and making it their life and. I did not want to do that. So um, that's kind of about where it ended. Well, you've made some life the choices. Last, the last year, yeah, the last year I, I averaged about 230 just to give you some idea. But yeah, it's life choices, exactly. Yeah, well, you made some life choices and those life choices have left you here now to talk about the Niners beating up on the Steelers 24 to 20 because they definitely eked out a game they probably should have lost by any other measure. I mean, you're talking about a game in which with about 540 left in the fourth quarter, the Steelers had a 70% chance of winning. Uh, and then Eric Armstead enforces a fumble, and the 49ers are in business. Uh, overall, five turnovers, uh, turnovers, of course, the story of the game. They ended up minus three because of the defense. Three of those turnovers were in the red zone. I mean, let's get to the things that we think. And overall, it really is that while Jimmy and Pettis are going to get the accolades, this win was really fueled by the defense because if it wasn't for the defense, the Niners are looking at two and one uh, and getting beat by the fighting Mason Rudolphs. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the, the turnovers early, it could have easily been, you know, down 14, 17, nothing right off the bat. 
defense held strong, even though it was bad field position, held him a couple field goals. You know, we were only down six, nothing instead, you know, kept him in the game early. Um, I mean, you know, a couple of the, st- one of the stats, I think my favorite stat from the game was that I think Mason Rudolph completed two passes that were more than one yard downfield the entire day. And when of course one was the touchdown to Juju Smith. And then the other one was the the one, you know, Jason Verrett, which I'm sure we will get into during his little brief stint, but those were the only two passes that were more than one yard downfield the entire day. So, I mean, that tells you how, how effective the defense was playing. I mean, you look at 82% of Mason Rudolph's yards came after the catch. Uh, and, and the big majority of them were, of course, on, on a couple of the plays that you mentioned. And that's in large part because the Niners were consistently blanketing the Steelers receivers. Now, I know the story so far with San Francisco is the performance of the defensive line. And that definitely has a big hand in, in really the defensive resurgence for the 49ers. But I don't think the secondary is getting enough credit so far this year for the 49ers. Because when you look at a couple of key plays, you look at a first quarter play with the Steelers threatening, the coverage unit clamps down in the red zone on third down. The Steelers come out in 11 personnel. They initially align in a three by two. And the Niners run a beautiful, or the, the Steelers try to run a three-man concept to the boundary side. The Niners have four defenders there and play four over three beautifully. Warner carries Juju on the crosser. Tavares Moore's on the other side of the field, and he helps once he notices that there's no other threat over there. Sherman locks down his defender on, on, in single coverage on that side of the field. You got Williams and Tart who bracket Vance McDonald on the seam, and Akella Witherspoon is right over Washington. You've got Rudolph, who's got nowhere to go. By the time he gets to a second read and comes off of it, now all of a sudden the rush is in his face. And yes, that's going to show as a pressure for Bosa and Armstead, but ultimately it's him having to stand in the pocket and the coverage defenders doing their thing that allowed the rush the time to get there and make Mason Rudolph uncomfortable. No, I mean, I think that's a great example. I mean, you know, we always talk about how like the pass rush makes things easier on, on as far as coverage goes in the secondary. But I think in your example, and I think a lot we've seen the first three weeks is the coverage is helping the pass rush. If, if they're, you know, if no one's open for three or four seconds, if the pass rush didn't get there early enough, yeah, you know, for three years, yeah, you know, I said three or four seconds, they're going to get there. They're going to cause some pressure. It might be more of a coverage sack type thing, but um, I mean, that's one thing. I mean, you know, a lot of our metrics on PFF, the Niners were, they weren't dead last in the league. They were close last year. And I think you see improvements in some areas. I mean, obviously Richard Sherman's healthier this year. And I think he's playing a little better. Obviously a killer Witherspoon is the obvious choice who has been, was, you know, one of the best corners in the league the first three weeks before he got hurt. Um, not only from a coverage standpoint, but this is a guy who, when he came into the league, I think one of the knocks on him was he was kind of soft and, you know, wasn't going to get physical during the run. And he, you watch the game against Pittsburgh and he's just throwing his body around everywhere. So I think he's really stepped up his game, both, you know, in the past and against the run, you know, some of these guys like, you know, Quan Alexander, you know, and I'll be the first to admit, I was not a huge fan of the Quan Alexander signing, just more, not even so much from the player standpoint, but just from, you know, value of, of paying that much to an off ball linebacker. But he's someone, I think, you know, that intermediate level has helped with the coverage, you know, to various more in the backfield um, at free safety. You know, I think just, Overall, plus it just you're going to have some regression. You know, they had two interceptions last year. I mean, just just from blind luck, you're going to have more than two interceptions this year. But you know, I, you're going to get a rebound. But I mean, I think that's one thing. I, I want to say, and I've off the top of my head, I heard their coverage grade is I think third with an PFF this year as a unit. It is, yeah, as a um, unit. They're yeah, third. yeah. I mean, it's just it's it's just night and day from last year. And I said I think the pass rush helps out a little bit, but I think the coverage is helping the pass rush also. It's just, I mean, they look. One, they're fun to watch. I mean, I don't think they're quite that 2011-12 level we, you know, we saw during the Harbaugh era, but it, it's kind of it, you kind of get that feeling a little bit. 
Well, I think ultimately the defense is working as an integrated unit because one of the things that that PFF does when you look at their PFF coverage grade, of course, that's not just because the pass rush is making the actual coverage of defenders better. What PFF tries to do is it tries to isolate that player's skill and what they contribute to the play independent of the pass rush. So think of it as a grade for that individual player, not just because of the pass rush. And I think that there are plays where you can see those two things working together really, really well. You look at the final play, effectively the play that, that iced the game. And it's a third down and very manageable um, from the Steelers 29. And really, I mean, a field goal ties the game at this point. The Steelers come out in 11 personnel again. The Niners show a cover six look pre-snap. And then they rotate, you know, a cover three robber. So at this point, you've got cover three, single high safety. And you've got your two corners on an island. And then you've got Moore, who's playing kind of this underneath the middle robber who's going to take and rob anything that comes over across the middle of the field. What do Sherman and Mosley do? They're on islands. They blanket their receivers. Those verticals uh, weren't really threats. I think Juju was really the guy who they were trying to target along the middle of the field. And then you've got Moore, who's basically standing there. Mason Rudolph is like, well, can't go out down the sideline. My primary read over here is taken out. So now I'm just going to go ahead and drift and walk around. And he drifts himself right into D Ford and Eric Armstead. And Eric Armstead, of course, forms a fumble. So I think that, that it is going to work as an integrated unit. And I know that we've talked a lot on this podcast about you know, coverage or, or pass rush. The, the argument was never that you only needed coverage and that you did not need a pass rush whatsoever to succeed in the NFL. The argument was ultimately that offenses could beat pressure by getting the ball out quickly. And that success from the coverage unit was much more difficult to defeat by an offense via scheming or some other thing that would eventually result in offensive success. But ultimately, those two things can be related. And there are some plays where the coverage is going to force the sack. And there are some cases where the actual pressure is going to help that coverage unit looks better. Really, really good, off, really, really good defenses, I think, have both. And so far through three weeks, the 49ers have had both. And while we expected the, le- the leap from the defensive line, I don't know that we necessarily expected this kind of a leap from the secondary. Yeah, I mean, I think this unit's played a lot of confidence last year. I mean, if this if this was a game I'm watching, you know, 12 months ago, you know, in the last two seasons, we were kind of like, you know, anything that can happen, bad will kind of, you know, not not to use the whole Richard Sherman, you know, slap Murphy's Law in the face line. But I mean, last year, after they took the lead after the Pettis touch, I, I would have just like almost expected in a way for Pittsburgh to come down and win the game where when they scored on Sunday to take the lead, I was like, the game's over. I go, there's no way Pittsburgh's going to come down and score with Rudolph back there and the way this defense was playing. I mean, just to me, it was like a foregone conclusion. And sure enough, I mean, they stopped him right off the bat. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, the offense has, you know, some consistency issues to work on. I mean, we'll get into, but I mean, the defense, the coverage, the pass rush, I just said, they're playing as a cohesive unit. I mean, it's just, they've been playing at an elite level the first three weeks. Yeah, they've been playing really well. I think over now, the course of the season, they are second in expected points added allowed. Uh, expected points, if you're not uh, if you're not aware, is basically a measure of the value or impact of a play using the most important thing in football, which are points. Uh, and basically, it measures which team is likeliest to score next and addresses the impact of a particular play on the next points to be scored. So it, it's a much better way of looking, I think, at play success or efficiency because you're dealing with the thing that actually matters in football games, which is points, not necessarily yards. Which you know, I think. Uh, you see lots of yardage leaders that aren't very good. Uh, Kirk Cousins is, has been there for a bit. Case Keenum, I think, is the example this year. Um, but now the 49ers defense is second in expected points added aloud. And, and that's really, really good because it means they're holding offenses uh, uh, from scoring points. That's exactly what you want your defense to do. 
Yeah, and I want to say almost as a team in DVOA, they're third. Is that correct? Yeah, so it's it's DVOA. They're, they're, they haven't put in opponent adjustments yet. So it's more like value over average right now, but they are third. Right. Uh, and so it is, I mean, as an efficiency metric, they are still very, very good. I mean, because right now you're looking at uh, like New England and Dallas, I think, are the overall leaders. And then the Niners come in at third and just, you know, kind of value over average adjustment, which is, I mean, it's a great place to be. It's a good three game start. It really is. Uh, and I think the other reason that this is a good, it's a good three-game start is because of the performance of Jimmy Garoppolo, specifically in this game against the Steelers. Right. So, so basically what you're saying is if for all the teams that haven't had the chance to play the Miami Dolphins yet, they're, they're ranked first. Yeah, that's right. I think. <laughs> God, you're, I mean, you're looking at like FBS uh, and FCS lines at this point, like 22-point spreads, spreads. That's like Bama and, you know, Southwestern, Eastern, Northern State. Right. And now it's like a weekly thing, whether it's the Dolphins or some of the Jets. Now you're just, it's the 20 point spreads are the norm. It's crazy. It's, it's sad. But, but, but yeah, Garoppolo, I, I mean, I honestly thought, I mean, to me, I thought this probably was his best game as a Niner. I mean, you can go back to the, the Jacksonville game in 2017. I mean, at least with our grades was the only game he's graded higher, but yeah, you look, that was kind of a game when, you know, I don't want to say it was meaningless, but the season was lost already, obviously at that point where this obviously was an important game. Um, just, you know, the constant pressure in his face. He was constantly getting hit. Uh, you know, Pittsburgh blitzed him 64% of his dropbacks, which is a ridiculous amount. The NFL average is about 28%, so that's more than double. Um, I went back through all his other games. He's never been blitzed more than 50%, except for one other game against uh, Tennessee in 17. So, I mean, they were sending everybody after him. Um, he was standing in the pocket, getting hit, making accurate throws. I mean, there was one uh, throw you had on Twitter, I think, earlier, either today or yesterday with – uh, he stood in the pocket and got slammed, uh, but got the ball out to Breida in the flat for a nice gain um, and just stood there, took the hit, and just had a throw right on the money. Um, you know, the other thing was, I think, you know, they were pushing the ball downfield a little bit more this week than they had in the past. He was uh, 9 of 12 for 171 yards on throws of 10 or more yards downfield. There was the one pick to Pettis, but we also had that one throw to Debo where if he had caught it deep downfield, that would have even been another, you know, that might've been a big touchdown actually, which would even, you know, pad those stats a little more. I mean, I think, you know, we've been talking about the defense playing at an elite level. The offense is moving the ball consistently through three weeks. It's just all the mistakes. Um, you know, the first two weeks, there was a couple of turnovers was mostly the penalties. I think they had, you know, four touchdowns call back on penalties through two weeks or the last week it was the turnovers. And, you look at the five turnovers and three of them really were completely self-inflicted that, you know, had nothing to do with the Steelers, you know, the, the, um, the interception that went to Breida that bounced off his hands, the fumbled snap, the, I don't know what you want to call the snap that, you know, Richie James tried to dodge, um, you know, that one. And then you have a fourth one where, you know, Moser drops the pitch and ends up being an 18 yard loss, which killed that possession too. So that's four possessions. They basically lost on, you know, self-inflicted wounds there. So, I mean, if, you know, I, I've been saying this multiple times, but I mean, if they can somehow get those cleaned up and be a little more consistent, you'll see kind of what they did against Cincinnati where they're just, you know, running teams out of the building. Yeah, I think ultimately you, you do worry about some of those because some of those are really, really basic things. I mean, you look at the snap and, and that's on Weston Richburg. Uh, I, I posted something on Twitter that showed the, the moment where that ball gets lost and it hits Jimmy Garoppolo's bottom hand. And for the center to hit the bottom hand and not the top hand, that's a, that's on the center. Usually, if it's a right. quarterback uh, issue, it's because the quarterback pulls out early and that top hand actually moves out. Uh, and so you either hit the bottom hand, the, like the, the back of the bottom hand, um, which, I mean, opens up an existential thought of which is the back of your hand. But we'll leave that for another show. 
Um, but it, but it hits it hits you know your hand or, or misses them entirely. But this hit the bottom of the hand, and Garoppolo's hand is very much in the place where it needs to be. And Weston Richburg just hits it. The snap count. Who the hell knows what happened there? I mean, I, I honestly think that one's on Jimmy um, because I think he called for the ball. I mean, everyone else moved. Uh, it's just he didn't wait for uh, the wide receiver to clear. So these are all like on the one hand you worry because they're super basic things. On the other hand. Maybe you don't worry because, hey, they're super basic. And so maybe the team will just clean that kind of stuff up over the next couple of weeks, considering that this is really the, the most sustained action that you're looking from from Jimmy Garoppolo to have for a whole season moving forward. Right. I mean, you got the bye weeks so over. You got some extra practice. You can work that stuff out. So, But I mean, I think he definitely, like I said, was to me, I thought it was his best game. You know, obviously he struggled in week one. The last two games, he's been really strong. I mean, one of the, you know, other thing, you know, from last Sunday, I mean, that kind of went, I don't say unnoticed, but I mean, you know, extended several plays with his legs. I think especially one on the last drive that kind of helped get a, a holding penalty on against Kittle or, you know, the Kittle was able to, to get, they kept the drive going, um, you know, he was able to extend a few plays. Um, but I mean, the last two weeks, I think he's got the second highest grade in the league behind Brady. Um, I know uh, David had tweeted some stuff about, you know, he's got the second highest percentage of, of positive graded throws over the last two weeks. I think he's got the fourth lowest of negatively graded throws. Um, you know, so I, you know, there was the, the fear of, you know, his knee and he's not there yet. And, you know, the whole mental thing, I kind of saw that a little bit in the preseason. I think you saw that a little bit in week one where I think it was affecting him with his accuracy and stuff. But um, I think the last two weeks, you've kind of seen the Jimmy of 2017 that we were, you know, expecting. Yeah. You know, I think when you, when you look at what Jimmy Garoppolo was in that five game stretch that made the 49ers give him as much money as they did, this is the this is the quarterback that we're seeing now in weeks two and three. I mean, you, you're looking at someone who's throwing the third most accurate footballs based on ball location. He's got very few uncatchable passes. And really right now, the only knock on him is that the, the deep ball seems to not really be there. He's got the seventh lowest average depth of target in the league at 7.2 yards. I think that long reception to Debo probably would have helped that average just a little bit. But um, you know, that's that's the only quibble that you've got. Other than that, he looks over the last two games and feels like the Garoppolo that the Niners had in 2017. Yeah, and, and those, you know, the average targets have it's actually been going up. I think that first week, it seemed to me like in the second half, once they took the lead, they got a little conservative and there was a lot of, you know, dinking and dunking and short passes and, you know, getting Debo and Kittle the ball, you know, at the line of scrimmage in space trying to do stuff. And they weren't really pushing the ball downfield where that average depth of target and average completion you know, downfield has kind of slowly risen the last three weeks, kind of back to where it was in 2017. Um, I mean, other interesting things was, you know, and and I think this yesterday or Sunday goes back to, you know, the blitz Pittsburgh was sending, but, you know, he was getting the ball out a lot quicker than usual um, on Sunday. I think he was at 2.34 seconds and he's usually averages around 2.6. So um, definitely doing a good job of getting rid of the ball, you know, when there was pressure in his face. Yeah, so that's really the other thing I noticed is that really the, the Blitzberg was real in this game. And, and I think Keith Butler had a very clear plan. Keith Butler, of course, is the Steelers' defensive coordinator. But he consistently attacked the 49ers with extra rushers on the edge. And, and I think he did that because you're expecting either the wide zone or you're expecting the Niners to play action off of that. And if you're rolling the quarterback out and you've got an extra rusher running right in his face, you, you destroy that play. And that happened a few times to the 49ers where they had an extra rusher. Jimmy Garoppolo tried to get the ball out and the ball was just tipped because there were two players in his face. Uh, And and even with all of that pressure, uh, I mean, you you mentioned it earlier. He was blitz 64% of the time. Garoppolo did indeed beat the blitz and and beat the blitz often. 
Um, and he did get the ball out super quick. Um, and that's why I think the offensive line wasn't really tested all that much. We, we feel like he was under pressure a whole hell of a lot, but I think he was only hit, uh, at least PFF had him be hit three times in the game. Uh, and I think it was like six pressures overall. It wasn't a, a ton compared to 33 dropbacks, but it just felt like he was hurried a lot, mostly because they were sending lots of extra dudes. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, you know, you look at, you know, Justin School, and that was, you know, the big fear this week. And, you know, he actually, I want to say almost held his own. Um, you know, he only had one quarterback head given up in one hurry. Um, his grade on our side was 59.8, which I think if you told me before Sunday that he was going to have a 59.8 overall grade for the day, even though that's like below average, I would have happily taken that. I think, and actually what killed probably his grade the most were the three penalties. You know, he had the two holding calls and then that backside, you know, block call, I respectfully disagree with. Um, I thought that was kind of a bit of a bogus call, but, um, you know, I think he, he did better than I kind of expected. I know he's, you know, it's really struggled quite in the preseason. Um, you know, we can talk about McGlinchey. He was a guy I think had the rough day, um, you know, Stefan to it, you know, I won't say owned him, but you know, had, you know, um, he had a rough day with Stefan to it. I mean, the one big sack that Garoppolo took was when, you know, Tua just basically threw McGlinchey aside and went right up the gut and, I, th- I think I want to say I was, I, you probably watched the film, but I think that was a fullback league play or trying to get reach um, use check and Garoppolo just didn't have time to go and end up taking the sack. But it was it was a rough day for McGlinchey on Sunday. So it was actually a, a different play. That was a play where he had, I think, Debo or someone on, on the middle on a dig uh, where he couldn't get the ball oh, to okay. them because he had to just eat it because he thought, I'm not sure if I'm going to get it over to it. He completed that fullback league play. And, and while he did see someone uh, kind of flash, he, he got it out in time uh, and he was able to, to make that play. You know, I think Justin School, he, I still think it's like, yeah, the fact that he wasn't atrocious was good, but I don't think that he was necessarily super tested. I mean, he basically faced Bud Dupree all game and Bud Dupree didn't have a, he's not really known for his pass rushing prowess. Um, He did allow a couple of pressures, which is fine, but ultimately the ball came out so quick, he was really hardly tested. I mean, you mentioned it earlier, right? But he he got the ball in about 2.35 seconds, which was the fifth fastest this week. And when the Niners ran the ball, they ran the ball 40 times, 20 of them were over right tackle or end, only four of them were over the left tackle or end. So they really stayed away from school, both in terms of how quickly they got the ball out and where they ran the ball. So ultimately, it's like, yeah, I'm glad that he wasn't abysmal. But at the same time, I don't think he got tested. That test is going to come against Cleveland, of course, when he faces Miles Garrett. Um, but I think you mentioned it, McGlinchey. Um, that was the disappointing one. Um, he he got he was on his face a lot. He fell into some old habits where he kind of gets over his his toes a little bit um, and leans forward and is able to get kind of tossed. Uh, and that's exactly what you're describing. He he did that early in his in his rookie year, and he seemed to get into that habit again uh, in this game against the Steelers. Yeah, I mean, going back to school, I think they gave him you know a little bit of help too. I mean, Kittle stayed in the block on ten pass plays, which was tied for the most in a game for him for for a career. You know, it's interesting because, you know, the Steelers have always, you know, T.J. Watt's been rushing from the left side to Priest from the right. I kind of was wondering if they'd shift T.J. Watt over just to, to test him, but they didn't. Um, but like I said, next week, you know, through three weeks, Miles Garrett's been rushing off the defense's right side, like about 60% of the time, which is just in school side. You know, I have a feeling it's going to be a little more next week, but that's going to be a huge test for him. Yeah, and I think finally uh, you wanted to bring something about the about the pass rush, right? Because they had another great game as well. Yeah, um, I mean, you look, you know, Rudolph was under pressure, like 12 of his 33 dropbacks. Um, you know, we talked about how, you know, he didn't have time to really get the ball downfield. He had two, you know, two receptions. Uh, there were more than one yard downfield. Um, you know, 
Nick Bosa and D4 combined for 10 quarterback pressures and just 37 pass rushes. Bosa had seven, you know, D4 had three. Um, and I mean, one of the things we've talked about, you know, the pass rush being effective, they've only blitzed 14% of the time through three weeks, which is the second lowest toll in the league. So, you know, they're getting home with four quite a bit. And we've talked about, you know, the coverage being better, but it's helping when they've been able to, you know, drop seven, they're not having to send extra guys and, you know, you know, put, you know, stress their coverage a little bit when they're getting home with four. Yeah, ultimately, I think the defense turned in a great performance. I think the offense did exactly what it needed to do, and it stayed on schedule, and it was able to beat the defensive game plan that they saw from Keith Butler and the Steelers, mostly because of Jimmy Garoppolo's processing, his accuracy, and they were able to overcome turnovers in a way they weren't before. I mean, you, you saw a lot of um, a lot of comparisons to the game last year in Arizona, where they turned the ball over five times and weren't able to beat one of the worst teams or the worst team in the league last year this is a very different team with a very different talent level and overall that's why they were able i think to climb out of this game uh and end up with the w yeah i mean that was one of the first things i think i tweeted sunday night was this was a game you know last year they would have found a way to lose and you know luckily they're playing a team that's struggling and that has a backup quarterback so even with the five turnovers they were able to to overcome that and win obviously you're playing a better team like a rams or or seattle i mean they're not going to be able to do that and get away with it all right, so if we get to players of the game, I think my player of the game is uh, K1 Williams. I think he played one of the better games I've seen him play in his career here in San Francisco. He has 27 coverage snaps. He was targeted just twice and allowed one reception for six yards. Of course, he had that third quarter interception, which another one of those right place, right time type, type of plays. But ultimately, he was very much sticking to his receiver. Um, he was he, Sometimes he'd grab Juju in coverage uh, when he was in the slot and he was able to help neutralize him. Overall, he played a very, very good game, and he's someone who also had kind of a bit of a rocky start to the year, but he's generally a, a pretty good cornerback, especially in the slot, and, and he's one of the big reasons, I think, that the 49ers were able to uh, cover the wide receivers for the Steelers and give the defensive line enough time to get home and get some pressure, so my player of the game is Kwan Williams. How about yours? Yeah, I mean, I definitely would agree, at least especially on the defensive side of the ball. Side of the ball. Um, if you go on the offensive side, I would go Kyle Juszczyk. I mean, you were talking about the fullback league play. I think that was probably my favorite throw from Jimmy. And I think it was probably my favorite catch of the game. I mean, that was an incredible diving catch while taking a shoulder to the head and hanging on the ball. And then he had the catch later in the game where he was basically, you know, throwing Mika Fitzpatrick around and breaking another tackle. I mean, it was really impressive. I mean, he had, a, he had a 91.8 grade, which was the best of his career um, on Sunday. So I think if you're going to give K1 Williams a game ball on the defensive side, I would definitely go use check on the offensive side. Yeah, that, that catch was worth at least $3 million. Uh, at least $3 million. Yeah. So it's like, you know, 40% of his, uh, of his salary, I think, is, is going to be wrapped up in that one catch. It was, it was definitely worth it. Before we get to our next segment, let's take just a brief break to hear from our sponsors. All right, so let's get to the rundown. These are the kind of things that happen midweek uh, or other stories that come out of the game. And of course, uh, this is usually where we talk about injuries. And unfortunately, there's a pretty big one because Akella Witherspoon is out for at least a month. He's been playing incredibly well, and he's been having the season that many thought he'd have in 2018, just in 2019. Uh, and now he's got a foot sprain, and the the wrap on him is, quote-unquote, at least a month. Uh, and that doesn't sound promising. Um, so now I guess it's Jason Verrett time, question mark? Oh, boy. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you like you said, Witherspoon has been, you know, fantastic the first three weeks. Um, you know, he's pass rating allowed is 59.5 to three weeks. He's allowed six catches on 18 targets. So 33%. I mean, yeah, what we were kind of hoping to see in 2018, we were, we've seen the first three weeks. So that's a huge loss. Cause I think after that, 
you know, there isn't a whole lot of depth after Sherman and Witherspoon. We saw, you know, Jason Verrett um, had two really bad snaps. Um, you know, I want to kind of give him the benefit of the doubt because this guy hasn't really played any regular season snaps in almost two years. So obviously that kind of, you know, the game speed kind of got to him a little bit. So um, I'm not giving up on him yet, but, you know, it'll be interesting to see if it's him, um, if it's going to be Emmanuel Mosley. I mean, you know, I'm throwing out, is Jimmy Ward a possibility at outside corner? I mean, I think at this point after the bye, he's going to be ready to go. Um, yeah. I'm going to have a few practices. I hope it's not Jimmy yeah, Ward, to ahead. be honest with you. I really hope it's not Jimmy <laughs> Ward. I'm, I'm, I'm over the Jimmy Ward experiment. I, I do think that it should be either Verrett or Mosley. I think Verrett is probably the more talented of the two. But at this point, I think Mosley is probably a bit more prepared for game speed. Manuel Mosley, at least in the preseason, didn't play terribly. He actually played relatively well, had some good spurts. Uh, his best games really against Dallas and Kansas City uh, in coverage in the preseason. And, and, so, and, and, and I think in the Steelers game, he also played very well in the limited snaps that he had as well. So I think that if Verrett can get used to game speed and once he knows he's going to play, then I think maybe that puts him in a different mindset. But he is the clearly the more talented of the two. And that's exactly why the team signed him. And, and if they're going to get value out of that signing, which I, I think that they, I, I hope that they would, then then it's got to be Verrett. And, and even if it's not, I think Mosley can step in and play uh, for spurts and hold it down until Akella Witherspoon can, can get out there. I'll tell you what, neither of them are Greg Maben. And, and I think that's, no. that's the key takeaway here. Somebody signed him today. Who was that? Uh, the Cincinnati House Cats, which, by the way, I'm calling them the House Cats uh, from here on out as a result of Marquise Goodwin's Instagram post. <laughs> well, good luck to them. Um, yeah, I, I, and I fully agree with you. I think, you know, it, hopefully, you know, Brett gets, instead of being thrown into a middle of a game like that after two years, that he gets a week and a half of, you know, practice with the ones um, that he's a little more custom at game speed and he's ready to go. And it's, except if it's not, and they think Emmanuel Mosley's the other guy. I mean, I think he can hold his own as well. But I, I agree. I don't think Jimmy Ward outside corner. I think we've seen that. You know, you want to have a discussion with him at free safety against Seth Tavares Moore. That's another thing. But I agree. I'd rather see either uh, Verrett or Mosley outside at right corner. I actually think that Jimmy Ward may end up at a safety slot because I don't think that Kyle Shanahan is super happy with Tavares Moore right now. He hasn't played exceptionally well. He hasn't played lights out. And of course, he was actually involved in both of the plays that the Steelers had in a negative way. He, of course, took a bad angle against Juju Smith on that long reception that hit Juju in the face mask. I mean, I, that was actually right. a really, really <laughs> great throw by Mason Rudolph. Um, and and uh, again, on the on the deep shot to Verrett, um, Shanahan mentioned that they usually have a safety over the top of that, and, and that was Tarverius Moore that was that single high safety. So uh, I think that Shanahan may be souring a little bit on, on Tarverius Moore and may give Ward the opportunity to win that job back here in the bye week. And so I think Jimmy Ward may be on the field, but it, it may be at safety and not at corner. Yeah, I mean, I think that's most of the likely scenario, too. I think you know, I think Ward took a bad angle against the Bengals, too, on that John Ross touchdown. It kind of in garbage time. It didn't really matter. But, you know, I think you, know, we, you, know, you guys have probably talked about, it too, but in, in our grades, he graded out much higher as a safety in college than he did at corner. However, I mean, I think he's still really inexperienced at free safety in the scheme. He's still learning. I think, you know, seeing him take the wrong angles and stuff like that is an example of that. 
Yeah, well, I mean, at this point, he's going to come in and play for a few weeks. He'll break a bone uh, and be out for another six or eight. And so, you know, it's just going to give Travis Moore some time to reset. That's all. That That's really what we're we're dealing with here. I, I think we're going to create we've got to create like some kind of like density adjusted break number for him because I mean, he's he broke his finger or dislocated his finger, broke a collarbone, broke his forearm, uh, broke his forearm twice, I feel like. Um, and I mean, the, the dude just needs a, gla- a glass of milk, unfortunately. But. I mean, you know, when you go get an x-ray and they tell you, you're like, is this, gonna, is this harmful? They tell, oh, no, no, you've had that of like 10,000 x-rays before like, the radiation has any problems with you. <laughs> yeah. Jimmy Ward, I'm starting to get worried about him. Yeah, radiation you know? poisoning. Get the man some iodine, yeah. stat. Oh, goodness. <laughs> right. All right. Well, of course, this is also the area where we update you on the punter because it's, it's Mish Wisnowski season. He is officially a member of the Better Rivals drinking game. I mean, he is fully ingrained into the lore of the, the Better Rivals podcast. And so, brief update on Wisnowski. How's he doing? Well, only had seven punts. He's tied Sam, uh, Sam Cock, Sam Coke, Sam Koch. I'm not sure. Uh, for the fewest points, or for the fewest punts for punters with three games, his 45.1 yards per attempt, or yards, yeah, basically yards per attempt, ranked 21st in the NFL. His net of 42.3 yards per punt ranks 16th in the NFL, and his hang time, this is supposedly the thing that he does really well, a 4.4 seconds, ranks 13th in the NFL. Uh, I mean, man, this if that doesn't scream fourth rounder, I don't know what does. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's obviously small sample size so far with seven punts, which I guess is a good thing, because obviously the offense is staying on the field. Um, I mean, I think with the net punting, we look, he's, he's had five open field punts so far, um, and then two coffin kicks, one with a touchback on Sunday where it looked like the snap kind of, he had to go off to the left to get a little bit. I don't know if that kind of threw him off rhythm a little bit or what. And then he had another coffin punt, I think from like the 38 or the 39. So both of those really affected his net average. But on the five open punts, he's actually slightly above average as far as net goes. But yeah, still, I mean, it's a rookie. It's early. He's had seven punts. So, but yeah, fourth round draft pick, not quite there yet, but uh, you know, he can hit people. So there you go. Yeah, Bradley Pinion and Andy Lee, both punters that the Niners uh, drafted that took really a year to round into form. They, and now they're both fairly good. And of course, Andy Lee's had a long career in the NFL. Bradley Pinion is still doing very good punter things for Tampa Bay, and they need him quite a bit more uh, than I think the Niners have had to need Wisnowski at this point. So I'm sure he'll develop into just a fine punter. But man, yeah, you know, when, when that fourth round pick isn't getting those returns in, uh, you know, I really wonder about whether or not I should change the coffin corner rule in the drinking game. And we just want to drink. As an Australian, I feel like he owes us alcohol uh, because that's what Aussies do. <laughs> All right. So, Jeff, what happens when Tevin Coleman comes back? Because he's supposedly going to come back after the bye week. And you've got Jeff Wilson, uh, who's the official goal line back. He is the Jerome Bettis fantasy football leader uh, over the last couple of weeks. His stat line's usually like, you know, three rushes for four yards and two touchdowns. Uh, but hey, it's effective. And if you've got Brita and you've got Mostert and you've got Wilson, the, the, the backfield's name is BMW. And I think the world is better when you have fantastic <laughs> nicknames for units like the million dollar backfield. And now, of course, you've got BMW. It doesn't really work when you've got like BMC, like you maybe run BMC, but that's like still kind of not quite the same thing. So what, what happens? What happens when Coleman comes back? Yeah, I think you have a lot of fantasy people outside of San Francisco who probably just picked up Jeff Wilson or are going to be really pissed off because, uh, I mean, I can't see why they would uh, keep four running backs or four halfbacks active on game day. So I'm guessing they probably keep him on the 53, at least for now, but I don't see him suiting up on game day. Um, and you'll see, 
you know, Coleman, Brita, and uh, and Raheem Mostert as your three guys. And you'll probably see Tevin Coleman, I'm guessing, kind of be that short route, short yardage back. Um, I don't think it'll be Mostert, just the fact that, I mean, ball security is, still seems to be an issue with him. So um, I think Coleman kind of slides into that, uh, you know, short yardage role. I mean, you know, Jalen Hurd is an op- possibly too, but I, I don't think just because, you know, he hasn't really have they haven't really had him as a running back, you know, in the preseason yet. And plus he's still coming off the back injury. I don't think they want him taking those kind of hits. So I think Coleman's your guy there. Um, and maybe they try to keep him in the 53 just so they don't lose him because if they try to sneak him back on the practice squad, it's a possibility that this time they end up losing him. But uh, at some point, you know, they may have to, I mean, with all these injuries and, you know, guys that you, you know, like with Staley were like, he's out, not out long enough where they're going to put him on IR and they have to keep him on the roster, but they need to sign a replacement. And he may be one of those guys on the bubble from week to week. Yeah, I mean, at this point, you're looking at needing to roster Staley for another several weeks. You're looking at rostering an extra running back. This really begins to impact your roster construction to the point where, you know, if you do get another injury, you're, you're going to have to make some really tough decisions. I, I do love Jeff Wilson. I think he is a, a big, strong runner. But I, I don't think that we should convince ourselves that his skill set is not replaceable. When you look at the touchdowns right. that the Niners have have uh, run, really, with, with him uh, near the goal line... The offensive line has opened some great holes. I mean, the, the Niners are really relying on some counter runs down there. They're relying on a bit more gap scheme than they have in the past. Um, they're not just running inside zone or outside zone. And Kyle Shanahan, I think, can scheme up or try to scheme up some other plays. You saw, you know, the, the kind of shovel pass along the goal line. You've seen that run now to Kittle a couple of times, both last year and once this year. You've got Juszczyk, who's run the fullback dive. You've got, uh, you know, quarterback sneaks that are getting run uh, by your quarterback. I think the Niners, if they really do need short yardage production... They can find someone to do that. And I think you're absolutely right. Tevin Coleman can do that. I love Jeff Wilson and I love BMW, but but let's not sit here and pretend that he wasn't someone that was, you know, signed off the street. And, and now let's not treat him as though he he wasn't and he wasn't eminently replaceable when it comes to his skill set. Yeah, and I think there's probably a good handful of teams in the league that have another running back just like Jeff Wilson, who they really like and he can be productive when he gets a chance to but is like fourth or fifth on their depth chart that is probably sitting on their practice squad. So it's not like everybody's going to rush to claim him if he ends up hitting the waiver wire. And I mean, you know, we're talking about these guys who are you know, out for a while, but not on IR. I mean, Akella Willerspin is a prime example of that. So, I mean, they might be looking to sign a corner sometime before the Cleveland game. And that might be another spot where, you know, maybe Wilson is the one that gets, gets the ax and they try to sneak him back on the practice squad. Yeah. I mean the, the Dante Johnson unemployment plan that the Niners have, there you uh, go. it may be, maybe on the upswing. I swear. <laughs> Does he need a job at this point? Has he, has he signed somewhere else? Not that I know of. Um, so yeah, he, he might be the next, next man up. Good Lord. Good Again. Lord. Hey man, look, it's the Bay area. They believe in recycling. Uh, and that means corners as well. Uh, so last he might thing, be staying at the Marriott right now for all we know for the last few weeks, just waiting for that phone call. Yeah, you know what? He may. He may. Absolutely. Uh, last thing in the rundown is uh, just a really quick explanation of cans. I heard cans a whole hell of a lot on the broadcast this morning. What does it mean when the, when the quarterback gets up there and he starts yelling cans? That's just a Shanahan parlance for kill. Uh, it basically allows the quarterback to change the play at the line of scrimmage without a huddle. Uh, you know, you, of course, you're, you're familiar with kill from the Harbaugh days. Um, you see actually the uh, the. Bengals will say cans as well as I think that the Rams sometimes will say cans as well. So, I mean, that, that word may change, but all it means is like, go to the next play. We call them the huddle. All right. So lastly, Jeff, before you go, I've got to ask you a couple things, right? One, we're, we're heading into the bye week, so we don't have a game to preview. But the, the question here really is, how good is this team? 
because you know we talked a lot earlier about how they are super high up there in terms of DVOA, which is an efficiency metric. Their expected points added, uh, well, really allowed from a defensive perspective, is super high. They're three and zero for the first time in a long time. Um, but the teams they've beat, I think, are like a combined one and eight. They beat a Bengals team that seems relatively listless. Uh, they beat a Tampa Bay team, which is kind of up and down and a little schizophrenic. And who knows what Bruce Arians is doing down there uh, in Arizona. And then, of course, the last game against the Steelers, against the backup quarterback and a team that is trading their fifth round pick for backup tight end uh, and trading their first round pick when they may need a quarterback for Minka Fitzpatrick. So ultimately, is this team any good or are we seeing a mirage where you know, you're going to see this team like lose six of the next you know, seven or eight and you're like, what the hell happened? Um, I mean, I think the absolute answer that probably will be when, you know, they face the Rams, you know, they play a good team in a few weeks, but, you know, and, and you make a good point The three teams that be in a one and eight, you know, I don't think Pittsburgh is a very good football team right now, though. You could also make the case of, you know, if you take away all the turnovers, they probably win that game by 21 points easy, but, you know, again, self-inflicted wounds and they got to start, you know, you know, correcting those. But I mean, the way I look at it is, I mean, I I want to say they hadn't won a game on the Eastern time zone since 2014, almost five years ago. And they did it in back-to-back weeks. So yeah, Tampa Bay and Cincinnati are not world beaters, but I mean, going the East coast and back-to-back weeks and pulling both those games out. Um, I mean, the Tampa Bay game, I think was a tough game where again, I don't think they won that game last year. They would have found a way to lose the Cincinnati game. They, you know, blew them out of the, the ballpark. So, you know, I think you know, they might have been the two prettiest wins, especially the Tampa Bay win. I mean, I think those were two wins on the road were games they have not won in the last few years. So, you know, and in the Pittsburgh game, yeah, the five turnovers were, were awful, but they, they found a way, you know, you know, good teams find a way to win when they're not playing well. And I think, they, you know, I think that was another example. So, you know, I, I, I want to say, Hey, yeah, they're for real. They're going to, you know, they're going to go 12 and four. They're going to contend for the division. You know, maybe not. I think I said when they play the Rams and start playing some of these, teams that are going to be contending for the playoffs. We're going to get a better idea, but I don't see them, you know, collapsing and regressing back to what we saw last year where they're losing six out of seven or seven out of eight like that. I mean, I think this is a team I had them as eight and eight at the beginning of the year, definitely a little more optimistic. Now I'm thinking more, you know, 10 and six in that 10, six range and possibly, you know, fighting for a wild card. Um, but you know, when, you know, we'll see the next couple of weeks, you know, Cleveland on Monday night and then the Rams, um, we'll get a, a much better idea of, you know, what this team has going forward. Yeah, you know, I, I had them at nine and seven in this preseason, and, and the other thing that I that I thought this preseason when we did our preseason preview was that this team was going to go as far as the defense takes them, and the defense thus far is playing lights out football. They really are, and and it's not just on that defensive line, but it really is their coverage as well. Their forcing completion percentage is up quite a bit in 2019. They're now fifth in forcing completion rate at 13. percent They were near last last year. Uh, they were 29th last year. And it's not just because of an improved pass rush, because when you look at their forced incompletion rate, when there is no pressure, it's at seventh in the NFL, 12.8%. So that means that their secondary players are actually playing better. And I think that, you know, that probably does put them in that 10 and six range. I agree. Now, what sucks is that you lose a killer Witherspoon and you've now got the, the Cleveland Browns and the Rams as your next games after the bye. But then you've got Washington and Carolina. So I think if they can get out of those games uh, in, in a two and two split, they're still five and two, and they're still really in a really good spot in terms of the rest of the NFC and the division. With of course the back half of their slate being a hell of a gauntlet with New Orleans, Baltimore, uh, even Atlanta, who can be dangerous, uh, and Green Bay, who's got a phenomenal defense as well. So I think ultimately, 
it's still like nine and seven, ten and six, but they're trending much more towards the ten and six. And I think that's if you were to ask Shanahan and Lynch what their plan was for year three, uh, that's exactly what that plan would be. Yeah, I mean, I think you know you could almost make a case that I mean they have a good chance to at least go three and one, or or even going to be favored in three of those four games. They're obviously going to be favored against Cleveland. I mean, I would hope they're going to be favored against Washington, even that's on the road, and you know. You know, Carolina's a little bit in flux with with the quarterback situation, but I think there's a good chance they're fair in that game too. So, I mean, the Rams are the only game they're really the underdog. So, I mean, they could you know easily I don't say easily, but very realistically get out of there three and one, and all of a sudden you're six and one, and you're three weeks, four weeks closer to having Joe Staley back and Akilah Witherspoon back, and hopefully he can stay healthy. You know, when you have that second half of the season, it's going to get much more difficult on the schedule. Yeah, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens because I think this chunk of the schedule is going to tell us a lot. And then I think, of course, the the back, uh, not not quite the back last quarter, but uh, kind of that middle quarter where you're looking at Green Bay, Baltimore, New Orleans, Atlanta is going to tell us a lot about the team as well. But, hey, it's, it's great to have some, some, some positivity here. It's good to have three win Wednesdays in a row. Uh, and it's good to have you back on the show, Jeff. Thanks for coming on. No problem. Anytime. That about does it for this week's edition of the Better Rivals podcast. Thanks again to Jeff Dini from Pro Football Focus for coming on the show and recapping the game. You can always follow me on Twitter at Better Rivals. And as always, go Niners. Go Niners.